Well, we are uh, continuing our series on Christian leadership. And you know, the book of 2 Timothy is toward the end of your Bible. And if you try to get it and lay your Bible flat, it doesn't want to lay flat because it's, you know, it's almost at the very end there. So just so you know, so if you see this thing flopping back and forth, you'll know why it's doing that. It's a new Bible. Um, so for the past... Uh, Several weeks we've been working on 1 Timothy. So that's uh, t- uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy. And the context for that particular letter was Paul writing to Timothy. He'd, he'd asked Timothy to remain in Ephesus. So uh, Paul expected to see Timothy soon. Uh, he sent Timothy to, to fix a mess that's in the Ephesian church. We read in the book of Acts, fierce wolves would come into the Ephesian church and tear it apart, and, and that's indeed what did happen. And so Timothy is speaking against heretics. He's trying to repair a mess in the church in Ephesus, and that's the context for the, for the uh, first letter. But it turns out that Paul was not able to go visit Timothy in Ephesus, and by the time he writes his second letter to Timothy, Paul is actually in prison. He's in a Roman prison, and the situation for Timothy hasn't gotten a whole lot better. Timothy still is in the mess in Ephesus, and Paul is probably in Mamertine prison. I think we have a picture of it coming up there. Um, so this second letter is, uh, is a letter that's written um, passionately from Paul. He's, he's in a place like this. It's, it's a pretty dismal uh, type prison. He's not in house arrest at this point. He's, he is uh, in a hard place, and he's writing to Timothy. By the time he finishes the uh, second letter to Timothy, he's going to ask Timothy to, to come and visit him and to bring Mark with him, and he, he tells him that people have deserted him, and, uh, and it's, he's in a lonely, hard place, um, and yet he writes this, this letter with passion, with faith, and, 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 uh, and telling Timothy that, that he can trust in God. And in many ways, uh, this, this is like Paul's last will and testament. In fact, Calvin said that this letter was written not merely with ink, but in Paul's lifeblood. So Paul was leading from a hard place. He was leading from prison. Timothy was leading from a hard place. He was reading amongst, uh, he's leading amongst naysayers in Ephesus and people who were opposing him. And, uh, and so there is a lot for us to learn in this letter. Perhaps some of you feel like you're leading from prison. Maybe it's the prison of your body or the prison of your circumstances. Or, or maybe there are naysayers or people that are saying things against the, the direction you, need, you, need, you know you need to go with your life or you need to lead others in. And, and so I think there's some things that we can learn here together. Now, Paul... Uh, he, he begins this letter saying uh, that he's an apostle, that, uh, that can mean two different things. One is it can mean he's a sent one, uh, but also, more specifically, Paul received his commission directly from Jesus Christ. Uh, he says he received it as one abnormally born because he received it on the road to Damascus in a vision from Christ. And, uh, and so Paul is speaking with the authority of God. None of us have ever received authority as Paul received his apostolic authority. And, uh, and so he says that he's an apostle by, the, um, by Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. The promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So who is Jesus? One answer might be that he is the promise of life. Jesus is the promise of life. 
And so we, remember, we often remember the death of Jesus, remember the suffering of Jesus, but uh, really there is a promise of life that is in Christ Jesus that we need to remember. And then Paul wrote to Timothy. So this is Paul writing to Timothy, and he writes to him as a son, and he says, um, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, we have received God's mercy and we have received God's unmerited favor, which is his grace. And because we have received God's mercy and his grace, we have peace, we have shalom. Not just the absence of strife, but the presence of goodness and life. And, uh, and so that's how Paul begins his letter. And... Uh, Paul says that he's praying for Timothy day and night. How often do we pray for someone day and night? But Paul was praying for Timothy day and night, imploring God's favor for him and his circumstances. And he says that he um, longed to see Timothy so that he would be filled with joy. Do you think that uh, Paul was invested in Timothy? Does it seem like Paul's invested in Timothy? He was pretty invested. And... Paul was not the only one to invest in Timothy. In uh, 2 Timothy 1.5 says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. So Timothy was also invested in by his mother and his grandmother. So Timothy had talent. He had talent because he was invested in. Now, first, God had invested in Timothy. We think about it. Uh, the first one to invest in Timothy was God. God invested in Timothy with the promise of grace and mercy and peace that comes from Jesus Christ. Because of Christ's sacrifice, Timothy had new life. Timothy had a commissioned life. And Timothy did not need to stand on his own. Rather, he stood in the power of God on behalf of the kingdom of God. And then Paul had invested in Timothy. Paul not only took a chance on this young leader, but he treated him as a son. Um, he treated him as a father, praying for him daily. And though they were separated and working in different areas, Paul never forgot Timothy. And he remembered him and cared for him and longed for him. Uh, and he was not just concerned about what Timothy could do in ministry, but Paul cared for Timothy as a person. He cared for his soul. And then, as we mentioned, Lois and Eunice invested in Timothy. Before Paul met Timothy, he had been um, benefited by family members who invested in him. Some of us also have the benefit of a Christian heritage. Others of us are first-generation Christians. Um, either way, we should not overlook the value of what we've received or what we can give in Christian heritage. So this leaves us with a couple questions. Uh, personally, who has invested in you? You can think about that. Who has invested in you? And has it been many people? Has it been a couple people? I mean, God certainly has invested in your life. Probably someone else has invested in your life because you're here. Those are, those are that's God's grace in your life. Perhaps you need more people to invest in you. Secondly, who can you invest in? So who has invested in your life, and whose life can you invest in? Um, prior to in, inviting the children to Sunday school, I shared the, the uh, me message from Matthew of the talents. These three men 
received talents from their master. One received five, one received two, one received one. It wasn't the number of talents that was so important. It was what they did with them. And the interesting thing in that story is that the, the, the one that's reprimanded is not reprimanded because he squandered the treasure. He's reprimanded because he didn't invest the treasure. Think about that. If God has given you talent, it's not enough to return that to him and say, here it is, here's your grubby talent you gave me. God wants us to invest that talent and return it to him with interest. That's the message in that story, and that's the message for our lives. And very much that message of the talents that Jesus spoke of relates to what Paul is telling Timothy now. People have invested in your life, Timothy. God's invested, your family's invested, I've invested, and now there's some things that you ought to do. Now, that question of investment has deeply impacted me personally. Uh, my mom is here today. If you haven't seen her, you can come and talk to her. But she's invested in my life. Um, I've had uh, a, a track coach that was a Christian who invested in my life. I've had uh, a pastor, Gary Hunter, invested in my life and my marriage at a very key time. As Ash and I have grown in Christ, Ash has invested in my life. There have been many people that have invested in my life. And as I've thought about these things and as, as I've realized what I have, I have received, I've learned to serve. And so I started teaching Sunday school. I became a children's leader at Bible Study Fellowship. I, I learned to tithe, to actually give a little bit of my money and then a little bit more, and, little, and then to, to give 10%, and then to give more than 10%. And I learned to, to go ahead and take a risk of sharing the gospel with somebody, even though it felt scary and, and, and like I was out there a little bit. And, and many other things, uh, as I've grown and investing what God's given me, guess what? I don't feel like I have less. I feel like I have more. And it's easier to invest, and it's easier to do more because of God's grace. We are meant to be investing sorts of people. That's what Christians are. Well, Paul um, has many things, or has three main things to say to Timothy uh, about, uh, from this passage here, uh, what he should do with this investment. And the first thing that Paul tells Timothy is that he should, he's been given a gift and he should use it courageously. He should be a courageous Christian. Uh, in uh, 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul writes, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God, the Spirit God gave us, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Have you ever felt timid about your Christian faith? I know in the past I have at times. Have you ever felt timid about your Christian faith? Timothy had several other people sharing a different worldview than what he was giving. He had other people. He had pagan Romans that were sharing a worldview. He had uh, heretics within the Ephesian church that were sharing a different gospel. He had people that were portraying a different reality. And so for Timothy to step up and say, no, not that, but this was an act of courage for him that God was calling him to do. But you know, this is nothing new. Christians have had to act courageously in the face of culture ever since the beginning. Uh, 
there's a man named William Wilberforce who uh, in the uh, late 1700s and early 1800s spoke against the slave trade. Now, if you were to speak against the slave trade right now, that wouldn't be countercultural. Our culture would go right along with that. Yes, we shouldn't have slaves. We need to fight against slavery and, and everybody would be on board with that. But in William Wilberforce's day, that was countercultural. That was opposing status quo. And so in order for him to give a message that we should not have slavery in the British Empire, people were fighting against him. And so year after year, William Wilberforce invested his time, treasure, and talent, and he would go up there in the face of all odds, and he'd put a bill out there to abolish slavery. And he worked with others to change the, the, the way people think. And over the course of time, slavery was abolished. And not only was slavery abolished, but many other things were changed as well. This is what uh, William Wilberforce said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now, we don't, the reformation of manners sounds funny to us, but he changed many, many social things uh, for the good in the face uh, of, of a culture that believed differently. So can we relate to that personally here and now? What's countercultural now? It's not the slave trade, it's other things. Um, we live in an age where there's a great divergence between people's profession of faith and what they believe morally and ethically. It, people can believe certain things, that God is God and even Jesus is his son, and believe things that are morally and ethically not Christian. And they hold those two beliefs at the same time. A demographics report regarding religious beliefs in our area on a scale of zero to eight, I don't know why they did zero to eight, but there's a relatively strong belief that God is love and invites the world into a loving relationship with him. 4.8 for that. Um, the belief that Jesus is both divine and human received 4.6. I was surprised that they were that high in our area. But when it comes to moral and ethical beliefs, uh, the highest belief for our area is that tolerance is necessary for social peace and well-being. That one received a seven. Now, the second from the lowest in our area, morally and ethically, um, receiving a point six, was the fact that abortion should be illegal. People don't believe abortion should be illegal in our area. Another low one was that religion must play a primary role in shaping social morality, 1.6. People in our area believe in God, believe in Jesus, and those aren't strong, but they're, they're moderately strong beliefs, but they don't believe that we should be shaped by those things. We believe that there's a God, we believe he's made himself known, but we don't believe that should make any difference in our lives. That's what we believe in this area. Is anybody stunned? I just, I'm reading those going, wow, that's what people here believe. And so in order for us to act counterculturally, all we have to do is take our faith in God and our moral ethical behavior and put them together. That God really says what he means in scripture. That what's written there actually matters and should inform and shape our lives. That we should actually change our behavior based on the word of God. We have divorced our belief in who God is and what he says. 
The historical books of the Bible, if they tell us anything, explain this. They explain that when a society divorces orthodoxy from orthopraxy, that's what we believe from what we do, God brings judgment. That's what happens in all the historical books of the Bible. You divorce what you believe and what you do, and God's not pleased with them. He's not pleased with your sacrifice. He's not pleased with your worship. He's only pleased when those two things go together. So relating this back to Timothy, Paul told Timothy to live his Christian life in the power and love and self-discipline of the Spirit of God, and this is going to require courage. In order for you to put all these things together, it's going to require courage for the Christian life. And so fan into flames the gifts God, God has given you, Timothy. And then for us, God has given us gifts to exercise. He has given us a Christian life to live, and we are to live it in a way that's unapologetically Christian. Uh, God wants us to live our lives as Christians, and our Christian lives must mirror our Christian beliefs. But as in Timothy's day, there is a temptation for us to be ashamed of our faith. There is a temptation for us to be ashamed of other Christians. And so the first action that Paul wanted us to do is to be, live our lives courageously, or to, Timothy to live his life courageously. The second thing is not to be ashamed of the gospel, not to be ashamed of, of God's messengers, but to join Paul in exercising his faith. So in 2 Timothy 1.8 says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or me, it's, uh, me his prisoner. Rather, join me, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Don't turtle. Don't pull your head in. Don't pull your feet in. Live courageously and do not be ashamed. Paul addressed this issue of shame head on. Is suffering part of the Christian life? Yeah, suffering's part of the Christian life. He said, you're going to suffer. You'll suffer in this life regardless, one way or another, and then you're going to suffer specifically for being a Christian. Suffering's part of the Christian life, but shame is not. Suffering is mandatory. Shame is optional. We're all going to experience some things that are hard, some harder than others, but we don't be, need to be ashamed of God, of his message, or his messengers, or ourselves for that matter. So Paul says, don't be ashamed, but join me. And don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, says in verse 9, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done but because of his own purpose and grace. And so we are not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of salvation from death into life. We are not ashamed of the gospel because it's the gift God has given us and there is nothing we could do to deserve God's grace or his favor, but the gospel is God's news, God's good news that he loves us anyway. So do we believe that? Do we believe that, we, that the central message of Christianity is that we have received God's unmerited favor? Um, perhaps you've not received God's unmerited favor yet. The message of Christianity is 
is not one that we need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that somehow we need to make ourselves better and better and then we'll be acceptable to God. If only I get clean up enough, then I can go to church or whatever we believe. It's, it's that, no, we're not good enough. That God loves us. He loves us so much that Jesus died for us and we're acceptable to him and loved by him because of God's actions. And because we're loved by God, then we would want to do what's right. It turns the natural way of thinking on its head. And this is the, the central message of the gospel, which we need to guard. But some of us, even though we might intellectually believe that, have a hard time believing that God loves us. And maybe that's you. Maybe you have a hard time believing that God loves you. That um, there are things that are unforgivable or hard to forgive. But God loves you. And that is the first thing that you've got to believe, is that God loves you so much that Jesus died for you. He loves you more than anyone else could possibly love you. It's an unassailable position. And God doesn't want to have a relationship that's based on works. Who would? Who wants to have a marriage that's based on, you do this for me and I'll do that for you? God wants to have a relationship with us based on love. And so... It says, this is the grace, this, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed to the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. We are not ashamed of the gospel because we realize that comprehending the gospel is the tr- gift of truth revealed. Although this has been, God worked things out in Christ before the beginning of time, this is not like plan B, this is plan A, it's been revealed with the birth and life and death of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation. Some people have received that revelation already, some people will in the future. But that is the gift of truth revealed. And it's God's intent for us to receive that. But the salvation was revealed before the coming of Christ. It says uh, in verse 10, But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality, light, through the gospel. So we're not ashamed of the gospel. We're not ashamed of the central message of Christianity because it's life. It's love. It's power. It's the message that, that because of what Christ did for us, we don't need to be afraid, afraid or ashamed or, or worried or any of those other things. We don't have to make ourselves acceptable to God because that is the central message of Christianity. God loves you and wants you to be in a loving relationship with him through Christ. Well, Paul also reminds Timothy not only not to be ashamed of the message, but not to be ashamed of the messenger. And so he says, um, continuing verse 10, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, and of this gospel, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering as I am, yet this is no cause for shame. Two things you shouldn't be ashamed of is the message and the messenger, but did anybody catch whose prisoner Paul was a prisoner of? Who is he a prisoner of? Rome? Yeah, he's a prisoner of God. He's a prisoner of Christ. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. 
Doesn't that just blow you away? Paul, in Mamertine prison in Rome, does not view himself as a prisoner of Rome. He views himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's not stuck there because of Rome. He's stuck there because God decreed that he would be stuck there, and he's okay with that because he knows that God will care for him. Don't be ashamed or afraid. Join me. So Paul's not asking Timothy to join him in Mamertine prison. He's asking him to join him as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Because if you're a prisoner of Jesus Christ, you're a prisoner of no one else. And Paul continues, because I know whom I believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day Paul put his life on deposit with God. And if you were going to put your soul on deposit somewhere, you probably wouldn't take it to Chase down the street or State Bank of the Lakes or any of those other banks. Where would you take your soul to so that it could be unassailable, so that no one could ever steal it or take it or destroy it? Paul's saying, actually, it's on deposit with God. That's, that's like the best place possible. Nothing can go wrong if your soul is on deposit with God. And that's what he said. A, few, a couple of years ago, we were um, in Singapore, and there was a, uh, a pastor up there, and he said, who you are depends upon whose you are. Who you are depends upon whose you are. Your identity depends upon who you belong to. If you're a prisoner of God, then your identity belongs to him. It's, it's, it's set in him, and nothing else can harm you, even though you may suffer for a little while here on earth. So much has been invested in you that you should be a courageous Christian. You shouldn't be ashamed. You should join with the other Christians and doing what's right. And then finally, you should guard the deposit. In verse 13, it says, What you have heard from me keep as a pattern of sound teaching. With faith and love in Christ Jesus, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So Paul put on deposit his soul with God. God put on deposit his message with Paul. We put our lives on deposit with God. Paul, God puts on deposit, he's trusting us with a talent. He's trusting us with the message of the gospel that we will use our time, treasure, and talent on behalf of the gospel, that we will invest our lives that we will protect the deposit, but we will also bring it back with interest. And here he says, guard the deposit. What could happen to the deposit of the message that God has entrusted with Timothy? Well, he's being assailed on all sides by false teachings. People might be saying that uh, the Christ has already returned the second time. They might be uh, divorcing Christ's humanity and his divinity. They, they can be saying all sorts of things about who God is. Guard the deposit. Make sure you're actually keeping the truth of the central message of Christianity. Don't allow that to be corrupted with spiritual gangrene. It needs to be um, guarded. Perhaps this might seem overwhelming, but Timothy, you have help. The Holy Spirit will help you guard the deposit. 
You're not on your own. God is with you. And he will help you carry that message. So don't change it. What you've heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching. Preach the gospel to others and don't neglect to preach it to yourself. Now, we have those three things that we've been told to do. And uh, you've got them up there. Courage, that we should join and not be ashamed. That we should guard the deposit. And then we get some examples here. And the examples, these guys' names are hard to speak. Uh, by Jealous and Hermogenes. Uh, good job, Rachel, for doing those. Um, Onesephorus. Can you imagine? Okay, so you, you do something that's spiritually good or bad, and then it's written in a book, and people read it, like millions and billions of people read it over the course of centuries, and your name is written in there. And you're either one of two things. You're a deserter, or you're courageous and not ashamed. So we've got these guys, Phygelus and Hermogenes, who were deserters. And their names are written in Scripture. We're not sanitizing this. These, these guys left. They just left Paul in the lurch. And yet, this other one, Onesephorus, at great personal risk, was not ashamed of Paul and hung in there courageously. You know, our, our names are written in the book of life. And nothing ever is really forgotten. It's forgiven, but it's not forgotten. And the good things that we do um, are, are like precious, precious things that survive the fire. It's not that we're saved by them, but it really does matter how we live our lives. And scripture is full of admonitions to live our lives in a godly manner. And just because these guys uh, deserted Paul doesn't mean they never turned back to Christ or anything else happened. But um, if you think about it this way, so 2,000 years ago, it probably made sense to these uh, people to desert. Now, looking back with 2,000 years of history, does it make sense? I mean, if you think if they were able to, at, at this point in time, look back on their lives and say, should I have deserted? Do you think they would say yes? No, because they're looking at it with a much broader perspective. They're looking at it with the, the sweep of time. And I think if we, if we think of our lives in terms of God's economy and his, and his time span and the, the, the length of time, the, all, all of that, instead of in just living in the moment, we might make some different decisions than we would make otherwise. We might make decisions like Onesephorus, who took a risk. He lived courageously. He wasn't ashamed. He hung in there. He guarded the deposit. Well, courageous Christians invest their talents boldly. I think that's the thing to remember today, that uh, they trust God's longer timeline, his ability to guard the deposit and souls. And uh, the question of the day is, uh, is this. What are you doing with a talent that God gave you. Please bow your heads with me. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your words in Second Timothy, that you inspired Paul to write them to Timothy, that they are not just words on a page, but they are living and active. And pray the Lord that you would do heart surgery with us, with those, that uh, your Holy Spirit would be active in our lives, that we would be courageous Christians, investing our talents wisely, for your glory. 
Father, uh, we are just so thankful for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.